scripture reading today is from Luke chapter 6, 46 through 49. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been built well. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. This is the word of the Lord. So we are wrapping up over this Sunday and next uh, our sermon series looking at the parables of Jesus from the Gospel of Luke. And today we're looking at what is both the shortest of the parables that we've looked at, but also probably the most difficult. This is going to be the hardest one because there's a couple of barriers for allowing this parable to really get into you or allowing you to get into this parable. The first one of those is construction. You know, the first barrier to this is we think we know a lot about construction. You know, um, so, you know, you, you think about... Construction. You think about somebody who wants to build a house, and this is how it works for us in our culture. They hire someone to bring a backhoe in and dig out a foundation. You know, a, a cement truck shows up and, and pours the foundation. They, they take a, a forklift and they put the cinder block in there, and then they start working with it. You know, once the framing starts happening, you know, there's a lot of prefab stuff that happens. There's nail guns. Um, there's tresses that you can have brought in. There's so much of construction in our culture that is super fast and super easy to do. And so, you know, aside from your street being blocked off and you having to do detours or some of the noise, people working on a Saturday morning when you're trying to to sleep, we don't think very much about construction. We think we know a lot about it, but it's something we actually don't think about very much. So this parable is remote for us for that reason. It's also remote for us. Because some of you grew up singing this parable. Like my kids, you can do... You guys know this? Not if you know this. The wise man built his house. Yeah, you're right, right. You guys know this, right? And, and so, because you can sing the parable, you think you know it. And I would tell you that we think of this as sort of a children's story. And therefore, a lot of the power of what's resident in this. A lot of the very grown-up warning that is resident in this passage is something that we sort of, you know, it's sing-songy. We allowed it to kind of float away. You know, now this story, as every kid could tell you, right, as every kid who's ever sung this song could tell you, it's about three things. It's about, one, everybody is building. Everyone is building something with their life. Number two, it says to us, look, you need a foundation to build on. You need some kind of foundation to build on. And three, that Jesus is that perfect foundation, right? Those three things. And let's just kind of, we can walk through the first of those very simply and very easily. Everyone's building something with their life. We all know that. I don't have to labor that one very much. I don't have to talk about that one very much because you know this. Think about the language we use, you use, to describe your life. Building a career. Building a resume, working on relationships. We are all laboring all the time. 
There's the work you do. There's your job. There's making breakfast. There's doing the laundry. There's walking the dog. There's changing the diapers. There's turning in the papers. There's grading papers. There's that work. But there's also labor that's much beyond that. Some of you experience this regularly. Where you're like, why am I so exhausted? Why am I so stressed out? Why am I so worn out all the time? Because you're not just working. You're building. You're trying to build a life that's worth something. You're trying to build a life that's significant. A life that lasts. You know this though. I don't have to tell you this. This is why we're all worn out right now. But you know, the other two points here are much more difficult for us to stomach. The other two points saying... You need a foundation for your life, and Jesus is the foundation. Those are a lot more challenging for us. Those are a lot harder for modern people to really want to stomach. You know, this passage neatly divides this room. And look, I know you hate this. I know that you hate to be classified. I know that you hate to be, like, labeled or pinned down on something. But this kind of passage, it neatly divides this audience into three groups. There are some of us who say, I don't need a foundation. Some of us who say, any foundation will do. And some who say, I've got that foundation in Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at each of those in turn. We're going to look at each of those this morning. So first, I don't need a foundation. You know, everything in postmodern culture tells you this. Everything says, everything says to you, Throw off the old old ways, the old restrictions, the old rules. You are competent to make your own decisions. You're competent to build your life any way you want to. You're competent to do so. You have what it takes. You know, we as modern people have this sort of notion of progress that runs throughout our view of the world. It's, it's sort of a sociological evolution. So we're, we look back at former generations and we think about them like, how quaint, how naive those people were. They didn't really know any better. And it's, it's very easy to look at the writings of Jesus and say, we're sort of past that now, aren't we? Sort of past restrictions. Sort of, we can kind of throw off some of that old way of, of, you know, it has to be done the certain way. You know, isn't God, you know, more like in Pirates of the Caribbean? You know, it's, it's more like, you know, those, there's, they're more like guidelines than rules. You know, see, that's, but Jesus' parable shows us there's nothing new. You know, it is soup du jour. And we lap it up with a big spoon saying, we do not need a foundation. And Jesus' parable speaks right to that. But you have to get the context. See, in Jesus' day, this is how construction went. Nobody in Palestine would ever build a house during the wintertime, during the spring, or the fall. There was only a few months of the year that you would ever attempt construction. It's during the summer. Because the rains and the snow come during the winter, and they are huge rains. And yet, during the summertime, it's dry, it's warm... And the ground hardens up. The ground in Palestine is mostly made of a very thick clay. 
And during the summertime, that clay becomes, as it says in Leviticus 26, as hard as bronze. So it's easy to imagine a situation where a, a guy is like, hey, I'm going to build a house this summer. He begins, he looks at the ground, he's like, this ground is like rock. You know, he, he may start to dig at it, he may pull out, you know, some hoes and shovels and picks and try to go at it, and it's just absolutely like chipping through rock, and he's like, I can build on this, nothing is ever going to shake this. I mean, there's rock somewhere down there. So he begins constructing, and he builds a one-story, seven-foot-high, maybe one- or two-room house. This is what the houses would have been like this in Jesus' day. And yet, when the rain comes, that hard ground is turned about the consistency of chocolate pudding, and those field stones that are uncut, that are used for building the house, that are held together with clay, begin to pop out. The wall bulges. The whole thing collapses. You know, this is the way the world looks to us. You know, the ground's hard. We can build our life anywhere we want to, in any way we want to. And yet, as we're going to see in a moment, it's the storms that come and show it for what it is. You know, I've been listening to um, Jerry Seinfeld's stand-up. I love Jerry Seinfeld. I'm going to date myself as a Gen Xer. Yes, I identify deeply with Jerry. Um, But one of my favorite segments of Jerry Seinfeld's stand-up is when he talks about little boys. He's like, little boys, when they hear about superheroes, when they hear about Batman and Superman, they aren't like, oh, those are great stories. He says, no, they say, those are great options. Those are great options. Who am I going to be? He says, case in point for this. These little boys grow up to be men. And he says, you'll see the guy driving down the interstate and he's got a mattress on the top. Right? He's got this mattress tied onto the top of his car. And he's got the window rolled down and the arm on top of the mattress. Because, as Jerry says, you know, if the the ropes break, the wind comes... He's like, I've got it with my arm. I've got it. And you know, there's, there's a certain sense of the I've got it that runs throughout all of our society and all of us. I've got this one. I got it with my arm. You know, this week a friend at Liberty pointed me to an article from the New York Times opinion page from December 5th. It was a great article. It's by a Harvard philosophy professor named Sean Kelly called Navigating Past Nihilism. And in it, he talks about what happens. He he refers back to Nietzsche, who said, God is dead. And Nietzsche's point about this was not so much a statement of theology as a statement of, we're done with the old foundations. We don't need that stuff anymore. And Kelly very insightfully says, what happens to a society. What happens to people when we embrace this? This is what he writes. Without any clear or agreed upon sense of what it to be aiming at in life, people may experience the paralyzing type of indecision depicted by T.S. Eliot in his famously vacillating character Proof Rock. Or they may feel like the characters in a Samuel Beckett play as though they were continually waiting for something. To become clear in their lives before they could get on with living. Or they may feel that 
sort of stomach-level sadness that David Foster Wallace described, a sadness that leaves them to distract themselves with any number of entertainments or addictions or competitions or arbitrary goals, each of which leaves us feeling emptier than the last. See, the sought-after freedom from the constraint of agreed-upon norms opens up a new possibility in the culture only through fundamentally destabilizing. Do you identify with some of those things? That stomach-level sadness? That sense of waiting for something to become clear in your life so that life can get going? That sense of, you know, is anything tied down here? See, what's this professor saying? He's saying, you need a foundation. We need a foundation. We need something to stand on. The house is going to collapse. See, one of the great shocks of the last century, one of the great shocks was sociologists looked at the century. And if you look back to the 1950s, there was this optimism. There was this sense of, we are the smartest, the most technologically advanced people ever on the planet. We've solved all kinds of problems. We're exploring unknown territories. And what happened? You come to the end of the 20th century, and no one would have called it. Incredible interest in spiritual things. Why? Storms. Storms. That's why the 20th century was the most violent century in human history. We got hit with diseases we'd never imagined or heard of. Terrorism. You know, what happened? The storms hit. People said, you know what? We need a foundation. We thought we could get by without one, but we need one. What about you? Do you need a foundation? Do you have a foundation in your life? See, the second group of people that this text addresses is not not just those who say, I need a foundation, I don't need a foundation, but those who say, any foundation will do. Any foundation will do. And, you know, this is closely related to the first point. You've heard this before. This is like elevator music in our culture. So you can sing along the song with me, right? here. See if you know this song. There are many ways to God. A beautiful life could be built on any sound foundation. As long as you love people and care for others and you don't impose your beliefs on other people. Right? You know that song. Sing along with me. All joking aside, that is, that's what's playing constantly. See, Jesus' words here are direct and they are bold and they are offensive. Notice what he says about building the house. He says, a wise man built his house on a rock? No. Not any old rock. On the rock. There's an exclusivity to this. There's not rocks. Many rocks. Choose one you like. See, we stumble over these words of Jesus. Jesus says things like, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This makes people choke. How? What? Exclusivity? The only way? How arrogant. How arrogant! You know, I think that 
most of the time when people stumble with the exclusive claims of Jesus, it's because they assume that they are said with a smugness. You know, when I say I am right and you are wrong, isn't there something that we hear in that that says, that person thinks they're superior to me. That person thinks on some level they're better than me. And it's, I would tell you, it's not the exclusivity of Jesus and his claims that most people struggle with. It's the superiority that they think is behind them. It's the superiority of what they hear, like, oh, those Christians. They think they have the corner of the market and they think they're so smart and so good. And I would tell you that Christianity itself cuts under all of that. It's not the exclusivity that's the problem. It's a superiority. In fact, the Christian gospel shows that this exclusive claim of Christ, it undermines any kind of smugness that could ever be pronounced with it. You know, let me show you something in this passage that honestly breaks this whole thing open on another level. When first century listeners would have heard this parable they would have played a word association game that you don't play. So some of you took the SATs or remember the analogy, you know, like analogy stuff from, from high school. And so let's play a word game, you know. So red is to fire truck as blue is to police car. Very good. So you're with me. So when they played this game, when they would have heard this passage, this is how they would have heard it. They would not have been thinking about nail guns and jackhammers. This is what they would have heard. Rock is to foundation as blank is to your life. Rock is to foundation as blank is to your life. And the word they would have put in there is a word that you and I wouldn't think to put in there. Temple. Temple. Many of you know something about Jerusalem. In the city of Jerusalem, there is a rock... And, and on that rock, that's, that's the place where the temple sat. In fact, you can look at pictures of Jerusalem today and you can see the dome rock. And this is the most holy place in all of Jerusalem. This is where the temple sat. And there, there are a lot of important things that, that Jewish believer, Jewish, the Jews believed happened at that one spot. They believed that was the place where Adam was born. They believe this is where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. This is the place where the Ark of the Covenant was set on that rock. This is where they set their temple. Jews today still face toward that city and toward that rock. And that rock has a special name. In Hebrew, it's called the Shetah, which means the foundation. And In Jesus' day, this is what happened with this foundation. It was in the most holy part of the temple. The temple had layers of entrance. So you could go in if you were not Jewish. You could only go in so far. If you were not a man, you only could go in so far. If you were not a priest, you could only go in so far. If you weren't the high priest, you could only go in so far. Everything about the temple said, God is holy, you're not. And in the very middle of that place, in the very center of that temple, was the place called the Holy of Holies. And in there, the foundation, the Shetea. And every year, on one day, and one day only, 
the Day of Atonement, a priest would come in. The high priest would come in with a huge, like a a huge, almost like a frying pan full of charcoal and set this on the foundation and incense would be put on it and the smoke, this fragrant offering would go up to God. Do you hear what Jesus is saying? I am the new Shetea. I am the new foundation. I am the rock. We hear this and we're like, wise man built his... These people heard this as absolutely blasphemous or the most hopeful thing you can imagine. See, Jesus' vision for your life is saying, your life, I want to be a foundation like no other. And that your life would be set upon me and it would be a fragrant offering to God. Your life would not be about your glory, but about His glory. It would be about Him and His purposes in this world. See, Jesus is saying something very profound. He's saying, He's not just saying, I'm the foundation for real life. That's true, but that's not all. He's not just saying, an unshakable wife is a spiritual life. That's true, but that's not all. He's not just saying, real life is only found when what you receive from me versus what you can build for yourself. He's saying, that's true, but that's not all. He's saying this, put your life in me. Put your life on me, the foundation, and I will transform it to be something that is much larger than you can ever imagine. It will be wrapped up in the glory of God and his purposes. See, every other foundation, by contrast, is no foundation. It's about building a mausoleum for yourself. You know, we want to build things like, hey, I'd like to have a life that other people respect. It's all about you. You know, I want to have meaningful significance about you. I want to have meaningful relationships. I want people to know who I really was. I want deep friendships. Any other foundation that we seek to build a life on is ultimately about glory for self. Jesus says, no, come and find me the foundation, this rock. Set your life upon it and allow it to be used for God's glory in this world. Your life about my glory. See, we want God to make our lives golden He says, I want to transform your life into be something that's that's so much larger than your tiny little self-focused dreams. We want God to make our lives shiny. God's like, no, I want to catch you up in my glory. You know, like the incense on the altar. Is your life just for you? No other foundation will do. Jesus is the only foundation worth building on. He's the only foundation... And see, if this rock, if this rock reminds us of the sacrifice of Isaac, Abraham coming and laying his son upon this rock and raising the knife, what do we see in this picture? You see a picture of a God who didn't spare the knife, who didn't hold back, but allowed the knife to drop on his son Jesus. 
so that you could be brought into the holy place. Your life could be mixed in with God's glory and it purposes in this world. Do you see? You know, the exclusive claims of Christ, they undercut any sense of smugness or superiority. They say, wow, this is what my life's for. You know, yes, Jesus is the rock, but it's not for me. It's for him, his glory in this world. See, this passage addresses those who would say, I don't need a foundation. Those who would say any foundation would do. And finally, it says something to us who would say, yeah, I know the foundation. You know, this is where the tough, it's really tough work. This is a tough passage for us because a lot of you have been singing the song under your breath since I reminded of you, you of it when we started this sermon, right? Wise man build his house. And you're like, yeah, build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, you've, got, you've been doing that, right, in your head. And, you know, I want to thank you. You've been very polite as I've worked through the first two points. You've nodded. You know, you've been very gracious as I've kind of talked about Jesus being the foundation. You're like, yes, I know that. Good job. Good job. But sometimes, sometimes we can know the whole thing and miss the entire point. You can know all the right stuff and miss the point. You know, Jesus tells this, when he says this passage, he is not saying, I'm the great foundation. You've got to read the words carefully. What does he say here? He's addressing people who say, I have God as my foundation. And he's saying, really? Do you? Really? He's speaking to us. He says, look, are you people, those who have empty words and empty ears? He says, you know, there's people who say, Lord, you're my God. But do you do what he says? You know, the word Lord is not a title. It's a statement of relationship. Jesus reveals to us over and over in Scripture lots of words we can call him. We could say, Jesus, you're Emmanuel. Jesus, you're Messiah. Jesus, you're Christ. Jesus, you're friend. Jesus, you're Redeemer. But there's one phrase that we use at Christmas. What do we sing over and over? Born a child and yet a king. Born a child and yet a king. And see, those are powerful words. Those are not metaphors. It's not quaint or cute. Because if you say, Jesus is my foundation, you are my Lord, you are my king, you are stating something very specific about yourself. You know, what is a king owed? Like, get it out of your head of the whole Queen Elizabeth, you know, England thing. Go back to, like, Knights of the Round Table. You know, King Arthur, Narnia. What does a king do? What is a king owed? Allegiance. Obedience. And what are the, they call everybody else in the kingdom? There's the king, and in the kingdom everybody else is a subject. Which means their lives are subject to the commands and the words of that king. See, when we say, Jesus, you are the Lord. We're saying, I am at your disposal. 
But are we people with empty words? Where Lord doesn't mean what it's supposed to. And are we people with empty ears? You know, listen to this parable. Let the parable speak. It's not just build your life on the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is saying something much more profound. He's saying, what's the foundation? He's not just saying, I'm the foundation. As long as you know that, you're good. You're golden. Those who hear his word and obey it. Those who hear his word and obey it. You know, no foundation is knowing his word, but not doing anything about it. That's what a foolish man is in this parable. Someone who knows all the right things, but saying, what I think and what I do are separate. What I affirm with my mouth and what I do with my life are two separate things. See, in, in, in the Holy Land, everywhere there is rock under that clay. On the tops of the ridges, in some places it's, it's exposed. Maybe it's just a few inches down. In the valleys, it's more than 10 feet below the surface. It requires a little bit of labor to get to. It cr- requires a lot of work to get to. And see, the point of this parable is asking this question, are you living a shallow life? Is there any depth to you? Is there anything beyond what's right on the surface? Are you living life on the surface? Or is there anything depth, anything down there? You know, if you're a shallow Christian, you're in big trouble. One of my favorite modern writers is a guy named Frederick Buechner. And his book, in his book called The Alphabet of Grace, he says these words which I, I, I so much identify with, and they make me shudder. This is what he writes. He says, I'm a part-time novelist who happens also to be a part-time Christian. You know, some of the time, certain things about Jesus seem real and important to me, but the rest of the time, I'm not much of a Christian in any sense that matters much to anybody. Any Christian who's not a hero is a pig. From time to time, I find that heroism, that kind of heroism, momentarily possible. Sometimes there's a seeing or doing or telling of Christly truth. But most of the time, I am indistinguishable from the rest of the herd that jostles and snuffles at the great trough of life. Part-time Christian, part-time novelist, full-time pig. That's me. Man, I identify with those words. You know, is there integrity to who I am? Or am I just part-time Christian, full-time pig, snuffling and jostling for the, for the trough? Some of you will object. You'll say, yeah, what is all this stuff about obedience? Why are you being so hardcore on us this morning? You know, I know you turned 40 this week. Are you suddenly having a crisis? Look, you know, it's true. Jesus, we're not saved by our obedience. We're saved because of death. The, the knife fell on the sun. You know, we're, we're brought into the Holy of Holies. But while we're not saved by our obedience, we're saved unto obedience. We're called to live lives that say... Jesus is my Lord, and you can read it off my life as well as in my words. 
I'm not part-time Christian, full-time pig. Here's my question for you. Do you obey Jesus when it's convenient, out of convenience, or out of conviction? Do you obey him out of convenience or conviction? Here's what I mean. Do you find yourself obedient to Christ when it serves your reputation? You know, other people look and they say, yeah, you know, he's got it together. What a good guy. What a good guy. Do you, do you obey Christ when it's convenient for quieting your fears? You know, your fears about death, about the sense of being rootless and exposed. Do you obey only to silence the fears within you? Do you obey Christ only when there's a sense of this feeding your pride? You're feeding your pride. I'm this kind of a person. Yes, I am. Such an obedient person. Have it together. See, you can fool everyone else. No one else knows. Right? Even in a church like Liberty, where our, our, the community life here is meant to be intense. It's, it's designed to be intense. We don't want you to hide here. We want people to know you. Because we all need grace. We all need God. We all need help. But at the end of the day, it's you. And you know. Is there depth to me? Look, I know. I know this is not the Christmas sermon that you wanted to hear today. Right? And believe me, I'm not just like, can I come up with the most uncomfortable Christmas messages I can? We all come to the Christmas season, we're like, I want some words of comfort. I want comfort food. I want comfortable family get togethers. I want comfortable sweaters. I want, you know, comfortable times. I, I want comfortable music. This is what this season's about for us as a culture. But I would tell you, if you read the Old Testament, if you read the real story of Jesus in Luke 2 and his coming into the world, it wasn't a comforting story. There are parts of it that are comforting, but it was disruptive. It's like smelling salts. You know, a football player goes out on the field, runs a couple plays, gets hit, blindsided, really hard, is laying on the field, can't get up. And the coach comes over from the sideline and brings smelling salts. And the minute those go under his nose, it's like electricity throughout his whole body. Right? It snaps you awake. You're like, this is what's real. This is what matters. And this is what Christmas is. Wake up to reality. Are you living in such a way that says, Jesus is the ultimate foundation for my life. He has got designs on my life that are not just about comfort. He's a king. He's worth following. He's worth my allegiance. The aroma coming out of my life should tell people, this is real. This is who God is. This is what he's doing. Fellow pigs. Fellow pigs. I invite you to come in repentance and say, Jesus, you're worth so much more. You're worth so much more. I've been holding on to the stuff of the pig trough. I've been holding on to the stuff of the pig trough. Will you come? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.
Amen.